Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are going to talk about Elizabeth Warren's latest plan. Our most eagle-eyed listeners might recall that we had a segment about this last week, about the growing din of people demanding a, a health care financing plan from Warren. And so we talked all about that, and then she made her health care financing plan public last Friday as Nerdcast came out, and so it blew up our, our little podcast world, and we had to scrap it. So we had received an embargoed copy of Warren's long-awaited white paper, the most anticipated white paper in recent <laughs> presidential <laughs> politics history. And so we're going to sit down with a couple political reporters here at Politico to talk about how healthcare has kind of taken over the Democratic primary and in some ways Elizabeth Warren's campaign. It's dominated the beginnings of a lot of the debates. I would call it Medicare for all who want it. I will not embrace a plan like Medicare for all who can afford it. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. I think we should have a debate on health care. Take credit, Bernie. Health care is a human right, not something to make huge profits I, I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. This is a question and it's for you. forced her, we're going to hear about, into this position where she's had to release this plan to talk about how she's going to pay for it. We're going to dive into a lot more with that later. But first, we're going to talk about some elections that took place this week, especially the ones in Kentucky and Virginia. Kentucky, a big governor's race there. The uh, Democratic candidate is leading the Republican incumbent in the the unofficial tally. There's still some kind of legal wrangling over that, but it it looks like the Republican's going to be unseated. And then in Virginia, state legislative elections with some big future implications. And we're going to talk about uh, why those elections might matter all the way until the year 2030. Uh, if you can believe it. We'll dig into that in just a moment. Quick note before we get started, we're taping this on Thursday. So anything notable or breaking happening after that, we're going to cover it next week. But now back to Kentucky and Virginia and elections and our first segment. And with us to talk all about it are two of Politico's election experts. We've got Steve Shepard here in the studio. Hey, Steve. Hi, Scott. And making her Nerdcast debut, Allie Mutnick. Hi, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is uh, the point. Everyone on their first Nerdcast has to recite the California congressional delegation in reverse district order. Uh, so do you want to do that now or at the end of the segment? Um, let's go now. Susan Davis. No, okay. so <laughs> the scary thing about this is that Allie is actually one of like six people on, on Earth who could actually do this if she sat and concentrated. So uh, she's she's going to be a really great addition to uh, Nerdcast. She's tracking house races for Politico. We're, we're going to have her back uh, over the course of 2020 to talk all about that. But first... Let's let's turn to Kentucky. That was the the kind of marquee election going into Tuesday night. So, Steve, set the scene for us a little bit. You went to Kentucky in the days right before uh, this election. Uh, you've got Matt Bevin, who's been a pretty unpopular governor so far, kind of racing and and it seemed like potentially successfully to kind of undo that and connect himself at the hip with President Donald Trump, who's very popular in Kentucky. And and you were there to to see the final days of this effort. Yeah, I spent time with both uh, Matt Bevan and Andy Bashir in the final days of the campaign, 
followed them around uh, parts of eastern Kentucky. I'd been out to West Kentucky earlier this year, so I got to see a lot of the Commonwealth. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right about Matt Bevin's strategy. It was to hug Donald Trump as closely as possible leading up to that final day rally. Uh, Donald Trump remains very popular, a lot more popular than Matt Bevin was, who's one of the most unpopular governors in the country, despite the state's partisan lean. Uh, and I, I had a conversation uh, at the rally, the, the Trump rally the night before the election, uh, with Congressman Jamie Comer, who's out from West Kentucky. Uh, he was Matt Bevin's primary opponent in 2015. Uh, it was a very close race. Matt Bevin defeated him by only 83 votes. The two men have really not mended fences and patched things up. Uh, they're, they're, they're still big intra-party rivals and, and have this big rivalry. And I asked Jamie Comer about this strategy that Matt Bevin's been executing, and he said so it was a smart one. I mean, that's what's happening. Uh, Bevin has definitely nationalized the race, made it about a referendum on Trump. Trump's really popular. I mean, Trump's got a 70 percent approval rating in my congressional He said that the president's really popular in his district. And so I followed up and asked him, well, what about uh, Governor Bevin? How popular is he in this? What's the governor's approval rating in your district? Uh, a lot lower than 70. Um, if he does pull it out. And he, he told me, well, a lot less popular than President Trump. Uh, this is a, and, and, and laughed when I asked the question, this is, it, it was just a really interesting dynamic where Matt Bevin tried to associate himself with the most popular politician in his party. And that, that politician, Donald Trump, was eager to come in there and save the day. And while the vote has not been finalized, it appears like he came up short. Steve, practical effects. Why, why did this matter? What in the state changes because it appears that Democrat Andy Bashir is headed to the governor's mansion unless this kind of nebulous legal challenge from Republican Governor Matt Bevin turns into something real against the odds? Well, Kentucky isn't going to overnight become a bastion of liberal legislation because a Democratic governor has been elected or apparently been elected. Uh, in fact, the Kentucky governor doesn't have as much power as some other governors uh, Kentucky is still the, the state legislator. The state legislature was not up on Tuesday, and Republicans still control that. Um, Republicans won the other six statewide constitutional offices that were up for election on Tuesday. Uh, and that Republican legislature has uh, veto power over the governor, and it only requires a majority to override vetoes. The, the governor's vetoes. So this is not a very powerful governorship. Not a lot necessarily is going to change overnight there. Uh, however, Andy Bashir Are you ready? Yeah. Are we ready to fight for our teachers? campaigned on expanding public education, which has contracted under Republican Governor Matt Bevin. Yeah. He campaigned on increasing access to health care. He campaigned on some things that, that he's going to seek to, to move forward. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he negotiates with basically Republicans in control of every other lever of government in Frankfurt. Voting rights is another big one that Bashir talked about. And there's uh, probably people who, you know, by executive order, he's going to be able to hundreds of thousands, well, tens of thousands of people, no, over 100,000 people who are going to be able to vote in future elections who were, were not able to vote in, in this one. Steve, what, what did we learn about this election, about the state of American politics? And, you know, and, and Kentucky politics, but the 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 forces that we saw at work here uh, speak broadly to the stuff we've been tracking uh, a lot over the past, over the Trump presidency, before the Trump presidency, even. But but forces that have really accelerated since then. Yeah, well, we learned a lot about this continued realignment of American politics uh, with urban and suburban 
areas moving sharply towards Democrats and rural areas moving sharply toward Republicans. But we also learned about the limits of that kind of partisanship, particularly when it comes to state and not federal races. You had here a, a state that President Donald Trump carried by 30 percentage points in 2016. And he traveled to the state the night before Election Day to campaign for Matt Bevan urge voters that the rally that they held uh, I, I was there in Rupp Arena uh, in Lexington Kentucky 15,000 people maybe in this arena carried live on local TV affiliates broadcast TV affiliates covered by the statewide media uh, really got the message out there that these voters needed to go out and vote for Matt Bevan but they knew Matt Bevan and Matt Bevan had alienated large swaths of the electorate. Well, rough his, around the edges, Matt Bevan. Rough around the edges, abrasive personality, had made some controversial comments, too, too numerous to list here. Uh, <laughs> they knew who he was. Uh, and even in a state that President Donald Trump carried by 30 points, Andy Bashir appears to have won by uh, four-tenths of a percentage point. And and again, appears to have won on the back of I mean, he he did much better than any national Democrat is going to do in in eastern Kentucky in the rural counties there. But but the the dr main driver of this, well, he, he still lost a lot of those places. He did enough to survive while driving up these huge margins in Lexington, Louisville, suburbs outside Cincinnati, places like that. And Allie, this is a thread that also ran through some other local elections, uh, not statewide contests, but local elections around the country on. Uh, Tuesday night that you were keeping an eye on. Yeah, so if you go way down the ballot, there's some more tea leaves. In suburban Indianapolis, there are two towns, Carmel and Fishers. Those are in Hamilton County, a really Republican county. They got their first ever Democratic members of the city council. Um, and then in Indianapolis and the county surrounding that, they have a unigovernment, one county, and Democrats flip four seats. So if we're looking really closely, you can start to see some of that suburban rot for the Republicans. Um, and that's kind of what we've been tracking in Atlanta, Houston, Orange County, all over the place. And Pennsylvania, right, was another place. Yeah, that's right. The counties around Philadelphia also, their county commissions, their county councils all got some Democratic flips. And then meanwhile, in you know elsewhere in Pennsylvania, kind of outside the big cities, we saw some county commissions flip flip Republican. Uh, and there's there's this you know push pull going on there, and then of course there's Virginia. And Ali, you were watching Virginia really closely on election night. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on in in the legislature there? That was kind of the big prize besides Kentucky for for the Democratic Party. So yeah, I mean Democrats really picked up where they left off in 2017. Few people thought the House of Delegates was going to be in play. Democrats flipped 15 seats, and then ended up not getting the majority because of you know, the Republican incumbent's name was pulled out of a bowl. That's how close it was. No, so. it came down to one seat and a coin flip, basically, right? Yeah. And so so they went into this election kind of hoping to be able to, to flip both houses of the legislature, and it worked. Yeah, it did. For the first time since 1993, they've got trifecta control in Virginia. They control both houses of the General Assembly and the governorship. And they flipped, you know, a couple of state Senate seats and a couple of state House seats on the way. Why is that so important? I mean, I, I, we talked at the, the top of the podcast. This particular election is going to kind of reverberate for over a decade now because of, of what's coming down the pike. That's right. And Democrats now have complete control over drawing the maps in Virginia. And that was the big prize here. They didn't have, you know, any stake in the process in 2012. So you saw millions of dollars of outside spending of Democratic groups coming in because they wanted to be able to control Virginia, not just for the next two years, but for the next 10. Mm -hmm. And so and that process is going to play itself out all, all over the country in almost every state 
uh, over after 2020 when we get the new census. People are going to be drawing new maps in 21, 22. Uh, and obviously we saw in in the most recent House elections, just because you have control of redistricting, Republicans had control in most places in 2010. It doesn't guarantee anything, especially when you get the kind of realignment that, that uh, we've been talking about in this segment. But uh, it's it's still pretty important. Yeah, I think that's right. When you look at Virginia, Republicans drew the maps. They had eight of the 11 seats for almost the whole decade, but then Democrats flipped three, you know, in 2018 on, on a similar map. Yeah. So uh, long-term effects, again, stretching out over the course of the next decade and, and beyond. Uh, pretty wild when you think about like how little attention state legislative races usually get to have that, that kind of long-term ramification. Steve, what are some of the other ramifications you were looking at on, on Tuesday night? Do, do those results in Kentucky mean anything for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's up for re-election in 2020? On the surface, uh, Matt Bevin and Mitch McConnell have a pretty good amount in common. They're both really, really unpopular, even in a state as Republican as Kentucky uh, when it comes to presidential orientation. Uh, but once you dig deeper, it's difficult to see how this all of a sudden means Mitch McConnell is vulnerable now in 2020. Most of the, A lot of the people who don't like McConnell uh, see him as insufficiently supportive of President Trump. You know, we think of the two so joined at the hip as they've been, uh, particularly with uh, when it comes to restocking the federal judiciary over the past two years. But I'm old enough to remember the first six, eight months of Trump's presidency when he spent... So you're three. <laughs> when he spent significant time on Twitter trashing Mitch McConnell, just trashing him. Uh the, the, the two of them have, have especially Mitch McConnell, has made his peace as he had to do with Matt Bevin. Remember, Matt Bevin is the, the man who challenged him, who primaried him in 2014, as he has with Rand Paul, who defeated his uh, desired uh, seatmate in 2010 in a Republican primary. Uh, Mitch McConnell's really good at mending fences. He is a political survivor, um, and it's difficult to see uh, that all of these folks now who looked at Matt Bevin and saw him as too abrasive and were willing to take a chance on Andy Bashir with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket in November 2020, all of a sudden are willing to entertain when it comes to the Senate and the Senate majority leader are willing to entertain the idea of voting for Amy McGrath, who's the likely Democratic candidate there. Yeah, I the I think the we we learned once again that the like federal and state elections have, have just like a bit of a different flavor going on and they they're definitely converging and trending in the same direction in a lot of ways but there's still i think just seems like there's more opportunity to break things open a little bit uh in in a deep red or a deep blue state at at the gubernatorial level or, or the state legislative level than at, in a senate race certainly and and Mitch McConnell might not he might end up underperforming Donald Trump uh in Kentucky on November, in November 2020, but he'd have to underperform by, you know, probably 20 to 30 points in order for that seat to be in play. And that's that's hard to imagine. Yeah. Allie, big takeaway from Tuesday? I think that Democrats are finally serious about redistricting. If you look at all the money that came into Virginia, this was them piloting, you know, a test of their strategy to do that on a much larger scale in 2020 when there's a lot more going on. They want to take back the Senate. They want the White House. They want to protect the House majority. But if they don't keep paying attention and keep putting money into these state legislative races, they're going to have a really rough congressional map and state legislative map for the next 10 years. And it seems like the upper echelons of the party really regret that they did not come to this realization and. 2009, 2010, when it was Republicans who spent big, and and well, and of course there was a wave election. You know, maybe maybe Democratic spending 
at higher rates would, would only have done so much. But the, I, there's kind of real feeling of missed opportunity there among Democrats that they're looking forward to, to rectifying, it seems. Yeah, and you can see that now by the names getting involved. President Obama endorsed a bunch of Virginia legislative candidates, Eric Holder, Terry McAuliffe. These are all people sounding the alarm on redistricting. Mm, that's very interesting. My, my big takeaway from, from Tuesday is that there, there's someone uh, I was talking to on Wednesday morning basically said it's like the, the, the dynamics that we saw in Kentucky and also Virginia and a bunch of other places, you know, this, this suburban, rural, urban, suburban, rural divide uh, is is just like buckle up and get ready to to be watching that all through 2020. And the way the way he phrased it was that the blue areas are going to be lit up so blue and the red area is so red that you can see them from space. And, you know, every, it's there's going to be it's going to be a divisive it's going to be a divisive election. So on that on that uh, uplifting note, <laughs> we're going to cut this one off and move on to our next segment. Allie, thank you so much for making the time to join us. Of course. And Steve, thank you for being here as well. Always a pleasure. All right. So for the second half of the show this week, we are going to talk about health care and one of the major flashpoints within that debate that has popped up recently in the Democratic presidential primary. And so here to talk about it, we have uh, Alice Olstein, Politico healthcare reporter. Hi, Alice. Hello. Thanks for being here. Sure. And Alex Thompson, national political reporter for Politico. Hi, Alex. Hey, what's going on? Oh, not much, you know. So, Alex, Let's let's get into the backstory of this a little bit. So some of our most eagle-eyed listeners might might recall that we actually had a brief segment about this uh, for uh, well, a, a not so brief segment about this for a brief time last week before we pulled it down on Friday because there was absolute chaos that just uh, uh, blew up our little podcast world, and it also blew up your your worlds uh, that morning, right? That's exactly right. We had we had received it late Thursday night, which was Halloween night. And the embargo was for noon on Friday. And then we woke up Good morning, everybody. in we Fox News, who I found out, you know, actually wasn't on the embargo list. Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All plan exclusively obtained by Fox News. The proposed um, hadn't received it before, but they had somehow been given the white paper early. Mm. And, and so they just ran with it. They it? ran with it at 6 a.m., and so we woke up and so the embargo had been lifted. So then they were like, OK, everyone's going to go at 830 and we're at like 815. And Alice, uh, <laughs> I was biking to work in the cold, all uh-oh. bundled up. And I got the text from Alex saying, oh, shit, pulled over immediately, got on my computer and we hammered out a draft um, and got our piece up and continued to update it with more context about the policy involved. Alice, can, can you explain why? This is such a thorny question. You before Warren had put out her plan, and then after you, you've written a lot about about the, just the the how of how to raise the money to pay for single payer health care has been a a big issue, garnering a lot of attention for for a long time, and it's very complicated. Absolutely, and I think that Warren went beyond what she was getting pressured to do in two important ways. So not only does she lay out exactly how to pay for the entire plan, but she actually lays out new policies that go beyond what Bernie's bill that she endorsed and co-sponsored would do. And part of that is to make the math work. So she says, I have all these policies to bargain down prescription drug prices, to uh, cut payments to hospitals and physicians in all of these very aggressive ways, to constrain costs. Those are actual policies, not just pay-fors, but they help pay for it. Um, So there's that. There's this new transition plan that's coming out because in the cost breakdown that she put out last uh, last week, it assumes that Medicare for all is all the way implemented already. And that's the way they 
do the cost, whereas the mm. in-between part is the really tricky part. What happens if you say, okay, we have a four-year transition, what, what's to stop private insurance companies during that transition from either jacking up insurance rates to crazy levels to get every last dollar they can before they're put out of business, or to just fold immediately and then all of those people who are dependent on them are screwed. So the transition really matters, and so it, it's interesting that she is digging into this in a way that other candidates have not yet. That is really interesting. What 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 struck you as like the the most the most interesting or odd or important thing in all this? Yeah, um, Alex and I were texting about this <laughs> on Halloween as I was handing out candy <laughs> with my nephews. So a lot of it was what we expected. A lot of it was we're going to tax the rich, we're going to you know bargain down prescription drug prices and pay hospitals and doctors less. Um, we're going to count on all of these administrative savings for ha having a more efficient single-payer system instead of our current system where you, uh, a doctor's office has to bill a million different private places and that takes time and money. So that was all very expected. A couple of things that weren't expected were the employer piece and how she designed it. So all of this pressure was on her, on her pledge that she set on the debate stage and sense to not raise middle class taxes. And here it gets a little semantic. <laughs> um, so sh what she's doing is she is charging employers a flat per employee fee saying, okay, you already pay all this money to private insurance companies to cover your workers. You're going to pay almost that exact same amount, a teeny bit less, but to the federal government now. So she's saying, look, that's not a new tax. That's not a new tax on the middle class. People are saying, okay, but it really is. Um, it's sort of a payroll tax, but it's actually she's getting slammed on it from both ends. You have Biden saying, oh, you're breaking your pledge not to do a middle class tax. And then you have people on the left. You have Bernie and some progressive groups saying, hey, this is missing an opportunity. If you did it as more of a percentage tax instead of a flat tax, you could hit the higher income people more, have them pay more into the system, protect the lower income people, have them pay less. And that's part of why this question is so complicated. Right. So another thing that was a bit surprising in the plan was that she laid out a couple of things to pay for the Medicare for All plan that would also, like the Medicare for All plan itself, have a really hard time passing in Congress. And one of those is comprehensive immigration reform. She specifically used um, the 2013 immigration reform bill that passed the Senate and then died in the House as, you know, generate all this new tax revenue as millions of undocumented immigrants started, you know, paying taxes. So counting that and counting a deep, deep cut to the Pentagon's budget. So this is, I'm already hearing folks pointing to this saying, look, we told you this plan was already not realistic and couldn't pass in Congress. This is even more proof of that because it depends on pay-fors that themselves are huge heavy lifts for Congress and very unlikely to pass. And so I think that in the broader debate of does this have the votes, th this is going to be a piece we're going to see folks pointing to. And so, I mean, th this is all about, and you're working through this complicated idea of how Elizabeth Warren wants to pay for Medicare for All. And this has been a big topic in the primary for the last few weeks, right, Alex? And it's, it's somehow the, the plans candidate, Elizabeth Warren, the one with more plans probably than anyone else about what she wants to do, was getting hammered for one plan that she didn't have. T take us back to why, how we got to this moment of why Warren was putting out this highly anticipated white paper in the first place. 
Uh, I think a lot of people inside Warren's campaign are asking themselves that exact same question about the, how the record we, scratch moment. Yeah, how did how did we get here? I mean, let's let's go back first to the first six months of this of this campaign, which Warren does not have a clear answer on healthcare, which almost every poll shows that is the most important issue to Democratic voters. You know, she's asked in this New York Times piece where they ask everyone the same questions: Do you care more about? building on the Affordable Care Act or Medicare for all. On healthcare, would you be focused on improving Obamacare or on replacing it with a single payer system? Yes. And she answers, yes. Both of them. Yes. You know, she is very much saying, let's get everyone at the table. Let's make sure we build. And, you know, Medicare for all is obviously the end goal. But, you know, we can do this and we can do this. And then apparently, as she's getting pressure on this issue, decides that that answer is not good enough. And so she says, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for All. That's sort of become the famous answer. But people forget that the first six months, that was not her answer on this. Um, then she starts getting, well, why don't you have your own plan? Like, why is Bernie's plan good? And she's like, well, Bernie's plan's great. Um, and then, then she starts getting questioned on the more unpopular parts of Bernie's plan, namely, Bernie's admission that he would raise middle class taxes. And she does not, perhaps with an eye at the ge- on the general election, won't make that concession. She won't say, I'm going to raise middle class taxes, even if costs, healthcare costs will go down, which is what Bernie argues. And now she tries to address this by by making that exact point. And there's this, this interview after one of the debates on MSNBC where Chris Matthews, right, is trying to corner her on this question. There's a have to more money. Oh, look. Well, your payroll go up. You guys dodged that tonight. No, it's not a dodge. It's about where... Shane Tapper kept saying, how much are your taxes going to go up? And you said... How much are your costs going to go down? No, no, no. Different question. How much will your taxes go up? No, it's how much are your costs. I have a different question. It's how much families end up spending. I know that argument. I know how you're covering it. It's not just an argument. And she's really standing firm and saying it's it's not a question of taxes. It's about what you pay. A dollar to taxes, a dollar to premiums. It's all a dollar coming out of your pocket. you pay more in taxes? Why don't you want to answer that question? Because 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 Jake said tonight that's a a Republican talking point. It's not a Republican talking point. It's a question. It's a question about where people are going to come out economically. Look, But that's not enough to kind of quell this line of questioning. From, from the media. Exactly. And, and then in the last debate, it wasn't just from the media, right? It was from the other candidates. Right. At least Bernie's being honest here and saying how he's going to pay for this and that taxes are going to go up. Amy Klobuchar goes after her pretty hard about, uh, you know, in her own sort of Minnesota nice way of attacking where she goes. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you I'm have not sorry, said that. but uh, you need to tell people where the invoice is going to go. People to tell them where we're going to send the invoice. And then Pete obviously says... You have a plan for everything. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything, except this. But not no this, the most important issue. And um, clearly, like, the campaign feels that in order to continue its its um, reputation as I'm the plan candidate, I do all my work, I do the, do the homework, uh, which is what the campaign said this last week. I mean, they even used the word, like, I did the homework. You know, I, I crunched the numbers. They felt that in order to preserve that sort of brand, um, that they had to go all in and really explain what they wanted to do on health care. And the striking thing is that this isn't over because the Warren campaign is coming out with another plan on its transition to Medicare for all um, in just, they, they, it's vague, but they said in the coming weeks. So clearly we're going to be talking about this for a little time to come. What we're seeing in this election is the more details you put out, 
the more you open yourself up to criticism. Well, yeah, you, you anticipated my next question to, to Alex. It's like, so yeah, she, now she's put out her plan and presumably all the criticism from Klobuchar and Buttigieg and, and, and the folks who were going after her in the last debate has just stopped, right? Because now she said what she's <laughs> going to do. That's how it works, right? Yeah. Are you suggesting that the the attacks were motivated by more than just intellectual Wanting to know curiosity? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine that, uh, and you're already seeing it, like Pete hasn't backed down on attacking her. Well, the math is certainly controversial. Again, there are variations in the estimates in the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And, and Biden hasn't t- uh, backed down on attacking her. Just get real with numbers. And in fact, you're even seeing Bernie really attack her um, over the weekend and saying that her plan would hurt workers. I think we have a better way. It wasn't progressive enough. Which is far more, I think, progressive. Mm. Um, so it has been interesting to, to see that, uh, you know, the, the plan did not quell the criticism at all. In fact, in, in some ways, it's uh, ramped it up because she is reinserting it to the center of the conversation. What what a lot of progressive groups that are pro-Medicare for All were hoping would happen was that she would throw down the gauntlet, say, here's my plan, where's yours? Even if you are for doing nothing and maintaining the current health care system, where's your plan to pay for that? Where's your plan to deal with the millions of people who are now uninsured? She was hoping it would take the heat off her and put it on them. That hasn't really happened yet. But it's going to be interesting to see, if you read through the plan, the outlines of how she would attack other candidates, especially ones in the center. You know, I think this is me speculating a little bit that as much as the plan was about rebutting these attacks, I feel that Warren herself feels more comfortable when she has sort of a plan behind her. She feels more confident. She feels less on the back of her heels. I think you're going to be able to see her be more assertive in um, contrasting herself and rebutting attacks on the debate stage and just in general with candidates now that she has done the work and has like put pen to paper. I think like this is as much about this again it's me speculating, but I think this is much about her like own headspace as it is like a political maneuvering strategy. That's a really interesting point. Well we've got a, only a couple more weeks to go until the next debate and we'll we'll be able to uh, find out how all that works out. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah thanks. Alice thank you as well. Absolutely. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. A quick note here, uh, this is Dave's last week as our executive producer. He is leaving us to join the team producing The Daily over at the New York Times. And so we just want to wish Dave well. Uh, He's been uh, so much fun to work with. He's had such a great impact on the Nerdcast. So we're going to miss him a lot here at Nerdcast headquarters. All right. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. So how far can you get going through the California congressional delegation by district? Oh, I was thinking, I don't know if I know 51. Oh, 51 is Susan Davis, isn't it? No, No, Davis is 53. Oh, Davis is 53. 52, 51 is Vargas. And then 50 is Hunter. Hunter, Levin, Ruta. Ooh, um, no, Barrigan's 44. 44. 47 is Lowenthal. Yeah.